Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we shine a light on the people who have shaped the cybersecurity world to find out what their origin story is, what events have shaped their journey, and what still keeps them up at night. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Space Rogue, aka Chris Thomas, a founding member of the first security research think tank, Loft Heavy Industries, one of the most influential hacker collectives in history. He's also the creator of Whacked Mac Archives and Hacker News Network, and has been a leading advocate for cybersecurity for the past two decades, educating and advising corporations, governments, and the public on internet vulnerabilities, election integrity, cyber terrorism, the internet of things, and much more. This year, he's released a book, Space Rogue, how the hackers known as Loft changed the world, taking readers on a journey through the 90s hacking scene and reflecting on how the message and cause they brought to Congress in the late 90s has held true for nearly 25 years now. Space Rogue, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in at the start. How did you first become interested in computers and technology? How did I first become interested? I think I was trying to get into college uh, and uh, I realized I needed a computer. Uh, and that kind of got me into a Mac SE. But even before that, we had some Commodores and Apple IIs and whatnot in high school. Um, so they, they were around. Um, it wasn't really a big driving force for me uh, until I got my own machine uh, in preparation for getting into college. And what was the early hacking scene like when you first started using computers and technology? Well, I don't know if I would even call it a hacking scene, at least not that I was involved in. It was really just bulletin boards and, and calling around with a modem over the phone line with your personal computer and leaving messages on those machines and reading other people's messages. Uh, and only you kind of sort of hear rumors about this underground or this hacking scene and, and not really sure what it's all about. And you kind of start digging and looking for information. Uh, and uh, you know, by the time I had moved uh, out of Maine and moved to Boston to get to go to college, I had started finding some of these, you know, so-called underground bulletin boards and, and back doors into, into other boards uh, and meeting up with some people and uh, physically meeting them in Harvard Square uh, in Boston. And we would just kind of hang out and talk about technology and things that you could do with it and the sort of, uh, you know, the more underground stuff, sort of counterculture, if you will, uh, you know, it's just very exciting time frame to be there. Okay. And I read a, a quote of yours that said that in the early days, the online world of hackers was one kind of exploration and learning where you didn't cause damage and followed a mantra similar to outdoors explorers of least leave no trace. How do you think that scene has, has changed over the years? Um, well, I like to think that at least that aspect of it is still there, at least somewhat, but it's also not as necessary as it used to be because you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, if we wanted to access high-level, high-performance computing platforms, we kind of had to do it on the sly without permission, right? Um, and, and so that leave no trace mantra was very important to to sort of preserve those resources, resources, if you will. Whereas today, I mean, for the cost of a good meal, you can get a high-performance computing platform uh, and do whatever you want more than you could probably ever do than than we could do, and those. Systems you can buy today, like a Raspberry Pi or other single board computer, are more powerful than anything we ever had access to uh, back then. Uh, you can, you know, download multi-user operating systems for free. Uh, you can play around and hack to your heart's content on anything that you already own. Uh, so the, the landscape has definitely changed in that regard. Uh, but I like to think that the the culture that was fostered during that time frame, the sharing, the the leave no trace, if you will 
uh, do no damage, uh, provide things for other people, at least in some aspects, in some areas, that part still exists. And from that early days of exploring online and meeting up with people sort of in your local area, the bulletin boards you were going on to, how did that transition into you forming Loft Heavy Industries? Yeah, that's a, it's a long story, I guess, but that's why I wrote the book. Uh, but the short version is that we, we, you know, we were meeting people personally, basically once a month, getting together at Harvard Square, having a coffee, having a piece of pizza, uh, at the food cart at the local mall. Uh, and there were a couple of people who had uh, a large amount of equipment in their apartments and needed someplace to store it. Uh, and so they rented an artist loft space in South Boston to put all this stuff. Uh, and so from there, it's just like, well, we got all this stuff in this storage area. Why don't we plug some of it in and start using it? Oh, we plugged it in and started using it. Why don't we network it together? Oh, it's networked together. Why don't we get a modem and connect to the internet? Uh, so it was like one step led to another step uh, and it kind of needed a name, right? Oh, you know, I'm going to the place like, well, it, it was a loft, L-O-F-T. So we're like, well, we'll just start calling it the loft. Um, and then we of course had to change the spelling to L-0-P-H-T. Uh, and then at some point later, we added heavy industries because we thought it sounded cool and came out of like a Japanese manga movie or something. Uh, so it, it, that's where loft heavy industries came from. And I suppose actually the heavy industries part, you know, when you look at computing stacks then versus what you were talking about now, Raspberry Pis and things like that, when you're probably moving VAX 11, 780s and things into a, a loft space. So heavy industries, is, I'm guessing, quite an apt title, really. Yeah, it was also because I think the building that we were in used to be an old uh, uh, textile uh, factory. So, you know, big high ceilings, heavy wood floors, uh, you know, pipes, exposed pipes and bricks. It kind of had that old heavy industry feel to it, which I also think may be part of the uh, uh, inspiration to add that to the name. So, And how many of the way you using this shared space at the time? Over its history, I think we've maybe nine or 10 people. We usually hovered around six or seven people at any one time. Um, there were seven of us that ended up going to Washington, D.C. to testify uh, at Congress. Um, so usually we stick with seven, but I think total, actually, I think the total is probably around 12 total members over its entire lifetime. Okay. And you mentioned the going to Congress thing there, because when I read about the hacking scene of that time, and I see a lot of like the inspirational work done by yourselves and others, that's really shaped how we think about vulnerabilities and disclosures today. I'm curious as to how well received you were by government and law enforcement, because, you know, there was a lot of, from what I've seen, there was a lot of interest and fears and uncertainty around hacking out time, the idea that people could whistle down the phone line and cause a missile strike or kids in basements were going to take out the Department of Defense and, you know, movies like war games and things that that was people's impression of the scene. So how did it you go from kind of this hacking collective into coming before Congress and were the authorities friendly with you? Yeah, that's it. I mean, the atmosphere at the time was definitely not one of cordiality and amenicability. Is that a word? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it wasn't friendly between U.S., between the hackers and the law enforcement and the government. Um, there was a lot of animosity there, a lot of fear. Uh, there was a, on both sides, uh, there was a lot of uh, activities by law enforcement that, uh, you know, the hacker community didn't think was great. Uh, and I don't want to get in too much about that, but there was the, the E911 case with uh, the Frack magazine. There was the Steve Jackson games case uh, where they basically uh, arrested a bunch of people because of a bulletin board and a, and a role-playing game. 
Uh, and, you know, there are other activities where people who are getting uh, uh, roasted and, and busted for going to 2600 meetings uh, and, and other gatherings, which we were doing all the time. And so there was a little bit of that fear of, you know, what's going on? What's the, are the government actually, you know, we, at one point you think, well, maybe it's just I'm paranoid. And the other point, well, you're not paranoid if they're actually out to get you, right? So there was that aspect. But at the same time, you know, at, when we were working at the loft, uh, we were trying to be very careful not to uh, step over the line, if you will, or antagonize people or get noticed in that way. Like we didn't we didn't want to go to jail. So we're trying to be uh, do what we do, but at the same time, still be uh, law abiding, if you will. Uh, so, you know, we felt that it was probably a good idea to try to uh, uh, cultivate some friendships on the law enforcement side. And so. Uh, Mudge and, and Weld and Brian uh, would often work with government agencies and train them in security and give lectures and, and talk and whatnot. And we all did this as a, as a matter of course. Uh, and we would reach out and became, uh, uh, we'd off, sometimes offer advice to the FBI uh, in a local office or other law enforcement agencies. And so at some point, uh, and I, I go through this and, and talk about this in the book about how we got noticed by Congress. You know, how do they know you even exist to call you up? And we had been getting a fair amount of press at the time. And uh, one of the articles that we got was in the Washington Post. Uh, and so my understanding, uh, and there are a couple of different versions of this story, but my version, my understanding is that somebody in uh, Senator Thompson's office uh, read that article and we're like, hey, you know, we're releasing these cybersecurity reports here in a couple of months. It would be really great to have these guys down uh, to sort of promote our report so they get a little bit more uh, visibility. And so they reached out to uh, us through Mudge's contacts in the, some of the work that he had been doing and asked us if, if we wanted to testify. And that was kind of how it, it came about, at least as far as I know it came about. Um, I've heard other versions of the story from from Weld and Mudge. So hopefully they'll write a book as well and, and tell their side. And one of the things I saw in the um, the testimony at the time was there was this warning that the, you know, you're trying to tell them that the internet could be taken down in 30 minutes. I'm interested, what was the basis for that, that warning and did it succeed in getting their attention? So uh, we had found a vulnerability in uh, Border Gateway Protocol or BGP uh, a couple of months before. And it, we had disclosed, we disclosed the vulnerability, it was, a, I think it was a Cisco router, Cisco router vulnerability. And the, the issue was that if you would send a, uh, one particular, basically a poison packet to this router, it would fall over and basically stop routing packets. But before it did that, it would send that same packet out to every other router that it was connected to, and then, then it would fall over. So it was a cascading effect throughout the whole internet. Uh, and basically, the only way to solve it would be able to turn everything off and then turn it back on again. Well, we disclosed this to Cisco, and they had issued a patch. But um, uh, when we got to Congress, uh, we were testifying. That was one of the questions that Senator Thompson asked us. He's like, you know, I, I understand that any one of you can take down the Internet in 30 minutes. And Mudge is like, yeah, we could. You know, one packet is all we need. Uh, but we had already disclosed the vulnerability. The patch had already been issued. Um, and it was it was pretty much public at the time. But the interesting part of that story was that after our testimony, uh, we would often have people come up to us and say, uh, hey, this whole take down the Internet thing, were you guys talking about, you know, if I do this, this and this and, and, and then steps would fall down? And we're like, well, um, 
no, that's not what we were talking about, but that would probably work too. Like the whole internet is, it, and it still is, it's basically bubblegum and bailing twine, you know, holding it all together. Uh, and you breathe on it wrong and it falls over. And we still have issues with BGP today. Like we have uh, routing issues where large chunks of the internet just get routed into a black hole and, and we don't know what happens and, until somebody fixes it and turns it back on again, right? Turns it off, turns it on again. So uh, these issues are still prevalent today and are still with us, uh, even though we were talking about them 25 years ago. And I imagine it was, was it quite an intimidating experience going to testify there? You know, you were from this hacker collective, you, you know, quite, I don't know how old you were at the time. I imagine you were quite young at the time going up and then it's all these kind of senators or these people, um, politicians in front of you who ne don't necessarily understand the technology and you're this group there saying you can destroy the internet in 30 minutes kind of thing. How, how did it feel personally doing the testimony? Uh, I think I was in my thirties at the time or just turned 30 or something. So I, I was one of the, I was one of the older members of the loft. Uh, Kingpin, I think is the youngest. He was still, uh, at the testimony. I don't, he might've still been in high school. I don't remember. He might've been, uh, you know, first year or two of college, but, uh, so the age variance between us was, was quite a lot, quite a lot, but I had never really, uh, spoken in front of a, a large crowd like that. And, and that room, like when you go into one of those Senate office rooms, uh, it's a big, deal just to be in that room like it's all cherry paneling super high ceilings the the dais that the senators sit behind is you know elevated and you're kind of down low uh it's very uh just the, the seating arrangement alone is is very intimidating uh and if you look on the cover of the book uh i've used one of the photos that was of us testifying on the cover of the book uh it's a pretty well-known photo of all seven of us sitting there and, and I'm like looking down at the table uh, in the photo because I can't, I'm too nervous to actually look up and look at anybody in the eye. And it wasn't until the test, the, 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 the testimony is like half over. Do I actually am able to look up and actually participate in the conversation and answer some questions? So yeah, it was very intimidating. It was very nerve wracking, uh, at least for me. And I think if I had been there by myself, I probably would have frozen out of fear and, and not even got out of my chair to get up and, and sit down at the table. Uh, but thankfully it was, you know, there was all seven of us there. So that made it a little bit easier to deal with. And one of the interesting things I noticed was you testified using your handle Space Rogue rather than your, your real name, which means that handle is now part of the official national record of the US for, you know, foreseeable future. What motivated that decision to testify under your handle? <clears throat> yeah, so we, it was very important for us to use our handles uh, pretty much all the time for everything. Uh, mostly because, as I mentioned earlier, there was a rather large adversarial uh, relationship between us and not only law enforcement, but large corporations. Uh, you know, we're publishing vulnerabilities on our website uh, and, and basically airing a company's dirty laundry. Uh, they don't really take kindly to that. And there was no bug bounties then, right? There was no uh, uh, carve out or safe harbor for security research. Like if, if companies didn't like you and what you were saying, they would come after you and sue you and, and do anything they could to, to keep you quiet. So it was important for us to have this, this sort of protection of anonymity in our publications and, and what we were putting out there. And so then that went to, you know, we went to testify. We're like, like, look, we'd love to come down and, and share our knowledge with you, but, uh, you know, we got to maintain the handles. And so somehow they agreed to that uh, and said, okay. And uh, we were able to use our handles throughout the whole thing, which is uh, very interesting because we had to get reimbursed for our travel expenses. 
we had rented a van to drive down uh, and we had meal expenses and whatnot. Uh, they can't very well write a check for to Space Rogue. Like I can't go to the bank and cash, you know, my, my $50 of, of gas and tolls and food for, at the bank. So uh, there's evidently there's an office at the, in the basement of, of the uh, one of the Capitol buildings where there's a man behind a desk who handles the petty cash for Congress uh, and you give him your receipts and you total them up and he gives you cash. Uh, and you still have to sign the ledger book. And we were actually all given additional handles, more real sounding names to sign the ledger with. Um, I don't remember what they were, but uh, so we all had an, an additional handle to get reimbursed with our, with our, for our receipts, which is kind of interesting. I think it's still kind of funny to think about it. Do you, you wouldn't think of the, the knock-on effect of, of testifying with that degree of anonymity on your handle, but then, you know, you're going to end up paying for your own gasoline to get to the, uh, the event. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad, glad you managed to work around that challenge. It's nearly 25 years since that event. Um, how do you think, and this is a very expansive question, but how do you think the cybersecurity how do you think it's changed since then? Uh, it's bigger. There's a lot more money involved. Um, uh, I mean, the industry is definitely totally nuts. Uh, I don't know how I would, uh, other way to put it. Like if you go to our RSA conference in San Francisco uh, and walk the, the expo floor, it both sides, if you've ever been to the Moscone, if you've never been to RSA, but you've been to the Moscone Conference Center, both sides of the center are full of companies trying to sell you stuff. Um, it's just so many companies and so much money involved. Uh, and that's just the industry part. Uh, as far as cybersecurity in general, you know, a lot has changed and, and a lot hasn't changed. Uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, we're still dealing with uh, end users who choose poor passwords. Uh, we're still dealing with, uh, you know, malware. Uh, currently, it's in ransomware and uh, crypto miners, but uh, it was still, you know, we had antivirus was one of the very first companies uh, to start the information security industry to begin with. And yet we also have uh, much greater advances in, in a lot of the protections we have. We have application firewalls. We're using cryptography even more uh, for the defensive side. Um, and so, you know, as the, the criminal element sort of advances in their techniques and, and whatnot, the defensive element as well sort of keeps right up with them. So, uh, you know, we keep marching forward, uh, but we're still having that that fight, if you will, over over good versus bad, good and evil. <laughs> yeah, one of the things with the, the industry in general seems to be the, the constant need to reinvent things that we often seem blind to the lessons of the past. So, you know, information security is now cybersecurity because it sounds cooler. IoT devices with default passwords are often treated like some brand new thing we've never seen before. What do you think it is about this industry that leads us to constantly reinvent things and maybe not remember what we used to deal with in the past? That's a good question, and I wish I knew the answer to that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and to bring back RSA again, I mean, I'm walking around the show floor and I'm I'm looking at all these companies, especially the smaller ones. You know, they have a whole company developed around one particular technology or one particular product, and I'm like. Oh, what is your what does your product do? Oh, we do this, 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 this. And I'm like, oh, I was doing that 20 years ago. <laughs> I didn't know a whole company could be built out of that. Uh, so, and, and that happens more often than you would think. Um, and, and you mentioned uh, information security is now cybersecurity, which 25 years ago, cyber was a dirty word. Like you could not say that without people laughing or telling you to drink. Uh, so it's uh, you know, but now that's the 
the sexy way to sell it, you know, it's cybersecurity. It's all shiny and new. We know about information. That's old and tired. So we want the cyber. Um, and so, you know, I remember that first start, that first change really started with the uh, college, college, uh, colleges started offering degrees in quote cyber, right? It was no longer uh, information technology or information, information security. They went straight to cyber um, and everybody had to have a degree in, in cyber, um, which again, 25 years ago, it was a dirty word. So, but now it is the lingua franca of government and uh, and we kind of have to use that word and, and, and go with that. It's, it's one of those things I'm always curious about that we, we seem to not listen to the lessons of the past. And there was an interview with you, I think around 2016, where you were talking about the deja vu that exists within organizations. And it was around the time of, you know, quote unquote, mega breaches where there was, you know, uh, some of the big retailers were being popped. And there was this sort of rush at the time to blame APTs and unstoppable threats and all this sort of talk of advanced sophisticated attacks that are out there because they were paying some company millions to investigate it and determine that they couldn't have possibly have stopped it. And at the time you were saying, look, people just need to get the basics right. And what we need is a wake up call. These breaches need to be a wake up call for organizations to start thinking about those things. Do you think that wake up call's actually happened yet? I, I don't know. I mean, the alarm, we just keep hitting the snooze button, I think, right? Um, you know, a lot of people look at our testimony in 1998 as a wake up call. And here we are 25 years later and, and you know, we're still sleeping. Uh, ransomware is the current wake up call, right? Uh, and we're, we're trying to look at, at, at ways to stop the ransomware attacks. But the problem is that their vulnerabilities are infinite, right? We're never good. We're always going to have new vulnerabilities. There's always going to be new ways that the attacker can gain access to the system. And once they gain access, they're going to try to monetize that. Excuse me. They're going to try to monetize that. And, it, you know, they go where their money is. And right now, the, the money is in ransomware because they know that people will pay. Uh, if we can somehow, uh, you know, and that comes down to, I don't think we're ever going to prevent people or criminals or uh, attackers from gaining access. The, the key is what we need to focus on is limiting their access once they get inside and identifying that they have actually gotten inside uh, so that we can uh, control their access and, and keep them contained in a certain area while we uh, you know, patch the vulnerability, kick them out of the system and clean up whatever mess they made before they gain access to the crown jewels and the rest of the network. But one of the you know, big problem is one of the lessons we haven't learned is a lot of organizations are still designing flat networks, right? Meaning everybody can access everything else. Uh, which makes it really easy for the attacker to jump from uh, the receptionist uh, computer system uh, right to the file server, right? Or, you know, HR payroll, where that, the receptionist doesn't need access to those systems. So why is, is the traffic allowed to pass through the network to get to those systems? Um, so, we, we, you know, we, we have technical controls in place to mitigate a lot of uh, adversarial actions, but for whatever reasons, a lot of organizations are not using them. And, and, you know, this goes into the whole issue of uh, technical debt or security debt, uh, where uh, we, we want to move fast and break things and we don't stop and, and try to think, okay, well, we should probably try to build this the right way. Uh, but instead, we're just trying to build it so that it works and move on to the next thing and leaving what we built behind uh, without the security controls in place, leave, you know, ready, ready bait for the attacker and the criminal to come by and, and, and sneak in and worm their way around and, and make life miserable for everybody. Um, one of the things you mentioned there is obviously there's always going to be new vulnerabilities, always going to be new attacks. I was interested if there's 
things that, you know, over your years in the industry that you've seen that started off, you know, you came across them, they were just theoretical risks because the compute power didn't exist. The technology didn't exist to make them exploitable, but then technologies have advanced. Everyone can access a Raspberry Pi very cheaply, plug it into a network. What, what things have you seen from a technology perspective that have opened up new attack vectors that were previously theoretical? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned theoretical. It's an interesting uh, word for me because one of the Lofts uh, phrases or, or slogans in the 90s was making the theoretical practical since 1992. And the reason we, we picked that, that slogan was because uh, we had a product that we came up with called Loft Crack, which was specifically designed to uh, audit uh, Windows NT passwords. Um, and, and we weren't the first people to, to put this together or come up with this technology, but we made it look pretty and we made it easy to use. And so it gained a lot of uh, press and, and, and attention. And I go over this whole issue in the book, but uh, Loft Crack, basically you would get the, the Windows NT password file and Loft Crack would be able to uh, go through and do a dictionary and brute force attack uh, and show you what the password was. Uh, and Microsoft was like, no, it can't. I'm like, yes, it can. It's right here. We, we did it. Just go ahead and look. It works. It's fine. It, you're like, no, that's a theoretical problem. That, that would never, not real. Uh, and so we're like, uh, we're making the theoretical practical over here. And the reason I think that they thought that, that, that the, uh, uh, our, our, our little, software program was theoretical is because that they were looking at the the encryption algorithm that they were using to encrypt the password right and that it would take you know a million years on a 486 dx25 or whatever the, the the system was to crack that password and they were right it would it would take forever to do it that way uh but what they didn't realize that that, that their implementation of that was flawed uh, and that they didn't have uh, actually they really didn't have a 14 character password they had a seven character password because they were using backwards compatibility with the old landman protocol. And I'm delving deep into the technical stuff here. But so uh, I think what, what my point is, is that while we have these technical controls in place and we have these really, really strong technologies, a really big problem that we have is that we have humans implementing them. And humans sometimes set the wrong features or, or, or set the wrong flags and, and, and make the settings to work in their environment, but it, lowers the security value of that technology. So um, you, ha you have to look at the whole system and how the whole system is deployed uh, to get the actual security value out of it, as opposed to just what it says on the outside of the box, you know, impossible to crack in 3.2 million years, right? Well, yeah, if you put it in perfectly, if you make something little tweak, uh, and this is something we see all the time when people install, you know, for example, a firewall, right? You install a firewall, and you add one rule to let one particular piece of traffic out, and you don't realize that that rule also lets something else in or lets some other traffic out or something else working in conjunction with your firewall kind of makes a mess of your security that you're trying to do. You know, and this is why, uh, you know, we've always been a strong component, at least Loft was always a strong component of testing your stuff. You got to think like the attacker and you got to look at a system and attack a system uh, as if it was the bad guy, uh, a bad person. Uh, so that you can find those weaknesses and know where somebody is likely to uh, come at you so that you can then shore up those defenses and make your network a little bit stronger. So as well as, you know, you've mentioned loft crack there and some of the, the technical capabilities that, that were introduced to the market, but you also mentioned that there's the human element you've got to consider. Was it the human element and, and educating people? Is that your motivation for starting the Hacker News Network? 
Yeah. Uh, so Hacker News Network, uh, for those that don't know, it was a little. Uh, it started out as a website where I would collect links of news articles and stories and whatnot that were related to hacking and, and post them. And then years later, I actually did a video blog um, before YouTube went crazy. I was way ahead of my time anyway. Uh, but yeah, so Hacker News Network was a big part of uh, education. Uh, and it originally started as an education to uh, help other reporters um, and other journalists. Uh, as well as the general public, to sort of take away the mysticism, uh, the, the the mysticism of hacking and and uh, the secrecy behind uh, the technology, so that people could understand what it was, and that you know it's just little ones and zeros. You don't have to be afraid of them or or not fear them or whatever. Um, but uh, so that that was a big part, and that was a big part of the mission of the loft as a whole, is to sort of educate and 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 bring awareness to uh, a lot of these problems, because I think. It, and we still see this a certain amount today is that this, this unknowingness, the fact that we don't know something sometimes lets us be a little afraid of it. Uh, and so once you educate people and let them know that, you know, you just type on the keyboard and that's it, it's not going to bite you. Uh, then that takes away some of the, the, the mysticism takes away some of the, the magic around it and people become less fearful of it. Uh, and when they're less fearful, they tend to relax, react less, uh, you know, need, fewer knee-jerk reactions to events and occurrences. One of the, you mentioned other journalists there and, and educating the broader community. One of the stories I read about uh, Hacker News Network was that there was a DEF CON one year where there were various members of the press being sort of thrown out of sessions because the people didn't want them to be there. And someone went to throw you out and you showed them the Hacker News Network sticker and they went, you're cool, you can stay. So did you find that because you've come from the community and we're publishing these news articles, you've got more friendly access and we're able to educate people more broadly on the things that were going on that maybe people weren't necessarily willing to share with the general public? Maybe. Um, I, I also know it went the exact opposite way too, uh, where I had suspicions of, of particular stories or activities and tried to find more information, but I was locked out and people wouldn't talk to me. Uh, <clears throat> and, and I assumed that was because that they felt that I would you know, spill the beans uh, inappropriately and, and without getting my facts straight or something. I don't know. But yeah, I definitely felt it both ways, where in, in some cases, uh, being a member of the quote media, even though it was the Hacker News Network, uh, some cases it opened doors uh, and, and allowed me to stay in sessions that normally uh, I wouldn't be in. Uh, at the same time, it closed doors uh, where I think people didn't share as broadly with me as they might have otherwise. And the, the title, the Hacker News Network, hack is one of those things that for people who are kind of in the scene, as it were. You know, it means someone who's creative, who looks for solving problems, who takes an interest in things. But I think the team term has been kind of misrepresented in popular culture these days and it has negative connotations. What's your take on how the word hack is used today? So, yeah, it's interesting that I named the website Hacker News Network because I never actually used the word hacker anywhere else on the website uh, or tried not to. Uh, and the reason for that was because you never really know what definition somebody has in their head when they read the word. Uh, it's, it's a fairly young word, at least, you know, for the most part, when we apply it to technology, it's a fairly young word. And so the meaning is sort of not uh, clearly defined or has multiple meanings. And depending on what your background is will depend on what meaning that you have or what meaning you're associating with that word. Now, for those of us in the, quote, hacker community, uh, we sort of... Uh, as you mentioned, we attribute that to learning, creativity, curiosity, trying to make things do things that they weren't meant to do. Uh, that's all hacking to us. You know, in another, another community, it's criminal. 
you're a hacker, it's a criminal, plain and simple, black and white. Uh, and it, it pains me sometimes to hear my kids talk when they're playing their games, like, oh, that guy's a hacker. I'm like, hey, come on, I'm sitting right here. Uh, and, you know, they're talking about somebody who's cheating in the game or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting word. Uh, it's one I actually try to actively not use because I don't know what the, uh, the audience is going to interpret that word as. Um, so I try to just stick with criminal or attacker to sort of clarify my meaning a little bit better. That's a great answer, actually. It's just one of those things that it, if you called something the Hacker News Network today, I think people would be very suspicious generally of it. So yeah, I actually had problems finding advertisers because it had the name hacker, had the word hacker in the name of the site. So uh, you know, one of the reasons for starting the site was to run ads because we didn't want to run ads on loft.com. Uh, we thought that was going to, uh, you know, impact our voice. So we created a whole separate website to host the ads on Hacker News Network. Uh, but I couldn't find anybody to host ads because it said hacker in it, and all the advertising platforms at the time had it in their uh, terms of use said no hacking. And I'm like. Well, so thankfully, I found a company called Burst Media, and, and I don't even know if they're around anymore. They probably got bought by DoubleClick or something. But, um, you know, anyway, it all worked out. One of the themes I've seen throughout your projects and the, the things you've become involved in is you have this skill and passion for cutting through hype and fear-mongering and, and grounding people in reality, giving them practical things to, to think about and, and do. One of my favorite examples of this is the Cyber Squirrel One project. So could you just tell the audience a little bit about what Cyber Squirrel One is, how it came about? Uh, yeah, so thanks for, for you know, mentioning that I, I speak plainly, I guess, and cut through the crap. Um, you know, no FUD, anti-FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, because, yeah, like I said earlier, like uh, trying to remove some of the mysticism helps remove the fear. Uh, and there's no reason to, to fear computers and the internet, I don't think. Uh, as for Cyber Squirrel One, it actually came out of... The original idea, I think, was has to be credited to Jericho, uh, Brian Martin, who did a talk with, oh, I'm going to forget the names. I really want to give them the credit. But anyway, they did a talk uh, about a cyber war. Uh, and the, the main uh, idea of this, their talk was that uh, pretty much cyber war means the power goes out. <laughs> At least it did when they, when they gave this talk. If you remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was the big deal. Everybody, oh, the power is going to go out. We're going to be in darkness for months and months and months. Uh, and so they gave this talk on cyber war, war and it's like, it's never happened before. It's unlikely to happen again. In fact, there's more power outages caused by squirrels than there ever has been by any other means uh, other than weather. Uh, and I kind of like, well, that's kind of a neat thing. Uh, and and I kind of went with that. I was like, well, you know, what? I'm just going to create a website and start cataloging all these outages by squirrels. Uh, but there was, of course, outages by raccoons and snakes and ants and, uh, you know, all other kinds of animals. I think there was one by slugs, uh, a lot of birds, uh, elephant. I think there was an elephant one I had from India. Um, uh, I think it was one moose one from Canada, like all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and it was just very, I found it very fascinating, very interesting. So I started listing them, created the website, Cyber Squirrel One. Uh, and the whole message of the website was that, you know, yeah. It's, uh, you can have a, uh, a cyber attack that can take out the power, uh, but it's not going to stay out for very long. You know, if you look historically at power outages, even those causing massive widespread physical damage uh, from hurricanes or tornadoes or whatnot, most people get their power back within a day. You know, if you look at the major blackouts that have happened in the North Ameri in North America, uh, there have only been like three or four in the last four or five decades that have taken out large swaths of the population. And again, 
Well, those people got their power back within a day. Yeah, there were some isolated incidents where it took two or three days, especially after Hurricane Sandy in, in, uh, in northern New Jersey and, and New York, where people had no power for a long time. Or after an ice storm, I remember there were some stories that people had no power for you know, a week, which really, really is not convenient at all. Uh, but to think that, the, that we're going to have a power outage that is <laughs> goes across the entire nation or a big part of the entire nation that's going to stay out for weeks and weeks and weeks and is, is what's known as a democracy-ending event or a black swan event, uh, it's just fantastical. Like, it's not going to happen. Can you take out the power by a cyber means? Absolutely. This was proven in Ukraine by Russia, who had some power outages, two of them, as far as I remember. Uh, it happened there uh, several years ago before the invasion. Uh, so, yeah, it is possible. But to take the power out and then keep it out, especially over a wide area, is a whole different scenario. Uh, a, a temporary power outage is an inconvenience. If there's a major power outage caused by cyber over a wide area, we got other things to worry about than there not being any power. Because at that point, I think there are going to be bombs falling and missiles flying and lead going downrange, as they say. Uh, so that's why I started the whole Cyber Squirrel One website was to sort of bring that rhetoric back and and say, look, stop spouting all this nonsense and, and fear mongering and, and you know working people up over uh, cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. Yes, it's a problem. Yes, we have to solve it. But to say the world's going to end is not helping anybody. And and just so people are aware, what does the Cyber Squirrel One project actually show them on the on the uh, the data that you provide? Oh, so the website has a map. Uh, and on the map, there's a, you know, little place markers for every incident that I recorded uh, of having a power outage caused by an animal. And so when you load the map, it takes like, I don't know, 30 seconds for all the little flags to load up. And that's only like two years worth of data. It's no, the, the, the site's been mothballed. It takes a lot of time to go through and search for news reports for all these outages. Um, and the, the entire data collection is now up on the Internet Archive if anyone wants to download it and, and play with it and mess around with it. But uh, yeah, so the website's still there. Uh, there is that two years of data that still populates the map. Uh, and it, it was a Twitter account that went with it. It was all very tongue-in-cheek that the squirrels were you know, attacking us and uh, that the minister of propaganda was, was spouting out, that, oh, we took out the power again in Skokie, Illinois, or wherever it was. Um, so yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with it. And I think a lot of other people saw it for what it was. And I hope it educated some folks into uh, countering the rhetoric that was out there and now it's starting to heat up again uh, about how fragile our infrastructure really is. Yeah, I think it's a great example of that kind of people misunderstanding and misrepresenting the risk of, of some of these things that are out there. And, you know, they, they hear about these industrial control systems, or they're still running XP, or they must be vulnerable to attacks when a lot of the time, you know, they're, they're reasonably well air-gapped, they're kept off things. Like you say, people are, are designed to recover things fairly quickly. So... On that sort of topic of grounding us, where do you think some of the, the biggest risks are today that people aren't necessarily hyping up and thinking about, but remain some of the biggest risks we face? Uh, I mean, there's still two big, huge uh, vectors that we see attackers use. Uh, and, and I'll mention a third one, too. I mean, the first two, are, it, nowadays we call it business email compromise, right? Phishing. Uh, I don't know why we had to come up with a new acronym for that, but uh, you know, you get a bad email, you click on the link and you're compromised. And, and of course, the second one is ransomware. And a lot of times they go hand in hand. It's the business email compromise that allows the ransomware to get in place to begin with. Um, and that's probably one of the biggest things that's impacting uh, most businesses today. 
<clears throat> beyond that, we're looking at nation state actions, right? Uh, where with uh, one country either just digging for information or attempting to cause damage or mining for cryptocurrency, which surprisingly is actually a nation state activity now. North Korea evidently is really big on cryptocurrency uh, and, and trying to get as much of that as they can because uh, I guess they can't get any other currency. So, uh, so yeah, so nation state activity is, is really a big issue uh, and that impacts everybody, right? Because, and I, I used to have a, a boss once who, who I would go to him and, and tell him like, well, we have this security problem. We have to fix this. Like this is an issue on this net on our network. And, and he would look at me and he would say, we don't, we don't build rockets. Like that was his answer. And I'm like, what, what do you mean we don't build rockets? Like, no one would want to attack us because we don't have rockets. Like there's no, there's no secrets here. Like I'm like we process credit card. Like we're a major target. What are you talking about? So there was a little bit of education that I had to do there um, for that guy. Uh, but uh, you know, and that's some, sometimes that w what we're looking at is uh, a lot of companies don't realize that they may be uh, a target of uh, international espionage in the cyber area because they think that they don't build rockets. They don't have government secrets so that they're, not a target, but uh, they are a target because maybe they have information uh, that on regular people that for whatever reason, some countries seem to be hoovering up at, at a large volume, uh, or maybe they just have resources available to uh, mine cryptocurrency. Um, and that makes you a target. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons that uh, a company can be targeted where they may not actually think that they are. Uh, and you know, we have an old saying in the industry it's not a matter of if you get hacked, it's when, right? Yeah, I think there's another one, isn't there, that someone said there's, there's two types of companies, those who realize they've been breached and those who haven't realized they've been breached yet. Yeah. Which is uh, which is pretty much the case, though. You say everyone's a target with some level of system because in some nation states, their whole objective is just hoover up data. They don't care whether it's particularly pertinent to a particular operation at the moment. It might be useful in the future. It might lead on to another step, so. Yeah, you touched on a point there. For one quick second, like a lot of companies don't know they've been breached. And I don't know what the current stat is, but I remember a couple of years ago, the average length of a breach before detection was six months. In other words, the attacker was inside the network for six months before anybody knew they were there. Uh, and, and I know that number has decreased today, uh, but still, if, if your network is not 100% up to snuff, uh, they can live in there for a long time before anybody realizes they're there. And it, it leads back to your earlier point around ransomware. You know, one of the things I, I annoyed some people recently at a conference because I said, there's no such thing as a ransomware attack, really. It's, it's the end stage payload of an attack, and they might have been in your network for six months, and they might have run out of things to siphon off and deal with and explore. And their final home area is to cash out by doing a ransomware attack. So you're worried about this this last stage of the attack you know i'd be worried about the six months prior to that for you and your example when they've been able to move around your flat network they've been able to do business email compromise to get in perhaps all these things so there's there's two pieces of, uh, of targets there you said they're the business email compromise and the ransomware there's that whole bit in between that people often forget to focus on because it's silent security debt that they haven't potentially realized there if you could give an organization one single piece of advice to improve their security posture today, what would it be? Uh, you know, patch management is a big deal. Um, and I, I'm just going to say, uh, even before that, inventory, you know, basic stuff. Know what you got. Uh, and it's hard to know what you have. Uh, I realize that. And it's never 100%. And you're constantly changing your network and your systems and, and adding new software packages. But 
just knowing what you have on your system and what packages you're running, that's half the battle right there. So that when the next new vulnerability comes out in the in the in you know SSH or whatever, you can know, oh, I run that on this machine. I run that on that machine. Or uh, oh, let me do a quick scan of all of my machines and find out where it is. Uh, that's a big, big, big deal, right? Just doing the in, the inventory, and then patch. You know, patch, 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 patch. You got to prioritize your patches though, because nobody has enough time to patch everything, and that's just the fact of life. Uh, if you're dealing with a couple thousand endpoints, uh, which you know I deal with at my job all the time, uh, you, you have to prioritize. You have to figure out which machines are most important, which vulnerabilities are most important, which ones are most likely to get exploited. Uh, because if you just try to patch everything, it, you're gonna, it's not going to happen. So you got to be strategic in what gets patched first, right? Deploy a strong network. Uh, don't make it flat. Segment. Put uh, barriers up in place so that once the attacker gets inside, which they will, as we've discussed, they can't easily move from one system to another. The lateral movement is, is, uh, is restricted, right? Uh, then worry about your users. Educate your users. Education is great. Uh, highly recommend it for everybody, but don't expect your anti-phishing campaign to save you. Uh, users are still going to click on stuff. No matter how many uh, phishing trainings you give them, somebody's going to click on something. And, and don't fire that person. Don't send them through remedial training because it's going to happen. Uh, it's, it's a fact of life. Uh, but worry about your users. Police your old users and your new users, right? Remove those accounts that aren't being used anymore. Remove access that isn't needed anymore. If somebody comes off one project and goes to another project, take their access away from the old project. Uh, th that sort of thing is, is a gold mine for an attacker when they're trying to find new access. You know? And then once you've done all that other stuff, then go look for bad people in your network. Start uh, you know, searching for, for compromises and, and looking for, for malicious activity. You know? And those are some simple steps. Uh, but I think if you start with the inventory, you do your patching, uh, your leg up on just about everybody else. So the, the advice you've given there, absolutely agree. Brilliant advice, but it, it's the same thing we've been talking about. Perhaps fishing education is is a bit new, but yeah, 25 years you've been talking about this. As someone who's testified about threats to government, what do you think in is the role of government in promoting cybersecurity and enforcing some of these controls you're talking about? That's a good question, the role of government in enforcing this. And that's been a de hotly debated topic for 25 years, right? Uh, especially in the United States where we have private enterprise uh, and whether or not government should be involved in mandating uh, certain restrictions or, or controls to be put in place. Uh, that's the question. Um, we, you know, in the United States, we now have CISA, CISA uh, Cyber Information Security Security Agency, which I think I just got that wrong, but uh, they're doing a great job, I think, at least of raising awareness, um, especially among smaller organizations. Generally, uh, uh, I think, is doing a great job of heading that, in, that organization up. The new Biden cybersecurity executive order uh, has some great uh, advice in it and, and great uh, things to, to follow. Uh, but the argument still remains as to whether or not that is government's role. Uh, should government be involved in mandating or even defining critical infrastructure, uh, you know, should the government be able to tell uh, an electric, a small electric company in uh, rural Montana that they have to have a cybersecurity officer uh, appointed, that they have to put these other controls in place? Uh, it's a private business; it's owned by shareholders. Uh, what business of the government is to tell them to do anything? At the other flip side, though, of course, is 
they're the government. They're protecting the entire country. They're looking out for everybody. Uh, so it is their role to tell them to do certain things and to put certain controls into place. Uh, and so this is a debate that we're currently having. Uh, and hopefully, uh, I think things are going in a, in a good direction right now, uh, especially with the new agencies and the new executive order. And hopefully we'll see some progress as we move forward. So we're almost at the end of our time here today. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or get out into the world? Um, I, I'll just remind everybody about the book. <laughs> uh, it's the story of Loft. It's the story. It's my story uh, and how I came from rural Maine and found technology and uh, you know found found the folks that made the Loft and and really the impact that Loft heavy industry had uh, on the industry as a whole still today. Um, you know, after we got uh, venture capital funding and became at stake, uh, and a number of people that we influenced, not just through uh, our original website and through the consultants that worked at at stake and the companies that we helped, uh, but how we uh, sort of put that loft mindset and, and all those people that we influenced are now spread out all over the internet and sort of everywhere. Uh, I think it's really mind boggling to me when I think about you know, 25 years ago, we were just the seven guys in a warehouse somewhere playing around with computers and trying to hook up a network. Uh, and it, you know, 25 years later, it still has a major impact on the industry as a whole. Um, so I encourage everybody, of course, to go out, get a copy of the book and read it, especially if you're interested in the, the 90s hacking scene at all uh, or the 2000s uh, startup.com uh, era. Um, Space Rogue, how the hackers known as Loft changed the world. One last question, it's a slightly odd one, is that when I was doing my research into you, I noticed that you have a stock pose that you use in every headshot you seem to have ever had, where you're peering over your glasses, that's it, looking through directly through my soul, slightly turned to the side. Is, is that a deliberate branding thing you came up with, or is it just a, a pose you happen to quite like? Uh, both. Uh, I, the original photo, I think, was taken by Nick Prococo in 2005, I think. Uh, and we, I was at a... a work party and I was just kind of standing there. I think I had my eyes, I think I was looking at my phone or something and he called my name and I looked up with just my eyes over my rim of my glasses and he snapped the photo. I was like, oh, that's a cool looking photo. Uh, and so that's kind of been my signature pose since then, uh, you know, looking over the rim of the glasses, giving people side eye, uh, looking kind of upset and PO'd if it was, as it were. Um, and I don't know, I like it. Uh, it's sort of a, a identifier, brand identifier. It doesn't have any other significance other than that. It's fantastic. It makes you instantly recognizable when you're looking through articles or conference presentations. You instantly can can spot you in a lineup because of that that signature pose, and you know everyone knows you as Space Rogue as well. So it's kind of this whole brand. I think it it just works wonderfully well together. So it's all it's all marketing. It's all marketing. Wonderfully done, <laughs> all the way down. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode of the Adventures of Alice and Bob. I'd like to thank our guest Space Rogue for sharing his fascinating story and bringing the loft mindset to the world. For those who want to learn more about Space Rogue and how hackers known as Loft change the world, visit bookstoread.com, spelt books, then the number two, read.com forward slash Space Rogue. That's booktoread.com forward slash Space Rogue. As always, I want to thank super producer Ben and the wonderful folks at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been the Adventures of Alison Space Rogue. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alison Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it. 